0: edition of the Bill Press Pod. Welcome back, good friends, and welcome to all of you newcomers. Please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod and come back and see us often. You know, it's still hard to believe that an armed ban of domestic terrorists, and that's what they were, stormed the United States Capitol on January 6th and almost overran the United States government. It's harder to believe that another mob will rally at the Capitol on September 18 in support of those who trashed the capitol on january 6th and even harder to believe that to date neither donald trump nor any of his top lieutenants have been held responsible for inciting that mob it makes you wonder could donald trump actually stage a coup d'etat attempt to overthrow the government and get away with it for the sake of our democracy we cannot let that happen We must make sure that Donald Trump is held accountable and made to pay the price for his disloyalty. And to that end, we've decided to devote the next three Tuesdays on the Bill Press Pod to a three-part series, Our Democracy in Peril, where we're gonna look at what happened on January 6th, who was responsible, what the consequences are, and how we recover and guarantee free and fair elections in the future. We start today by setting the scene with a look at the timeline leading up to the January 6th insurrection. Our guest is Ryan Goodman, professor of law at the New York University Law School and founder and co-editor-in-chief of the online forum, Just Security. Ryan Goodman, welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. So, Ryan, as you know, we're starting a series of podcasts here on the Bill Press Pod to look in depth at the insurrection of January 6th, particularly the role that Donald Trump played, uh, Donald Trump and his top aides, and what should be done about it. And in doing so, we turn to you first because of your excellent reporting on just security on the timeline of events leading up to January 6th. So let me ask you first, is there any doubt that January 6th was sort of the ultimate act and an attempt to overthrow the United States government and that Donald Trump himself was behind it?
1: So I don't think there's a way to avoid that conclusion. Based on all the facts that we know, that this came so very close to interrupting the peaceful transfer of power. And in a certain sense, it was an interruption of the peaceful transfer of power because there was a violent attempt by some to do just that. And it certainly seems that Donald Trump, at a minimum, in the moment of seeing this all take place on his television screen, did nothing to stop it when he had a huge, enormous responsibility to do just that. And then... We have a lot of indications that it's essentially what he wanted to see happen, um, Mm -hmm. that he wanted his supporters to interrupt the business of Congress on January 6th.
0: Right. I want to get to some of those step-by-step as you have uh, reporters again so well on Just Security, you and your colleagues, I should say. Had it been successful, (laughs) would it be fair to call what happened a coup d'etat? Was this a failed coup d'etat?
1: So I think so. And it's just ominous to even think about it in these terms, but what the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time was fearful of was a coup d'etat, a use of the military as part of this scheme to hold on to power on the part of Donald Trump and his uh, close associates. That was their intent. And the U.S. military was poised, it seems, from all reports, Mm -hmm. uh, for that very scenario. Right. So backing
0: up, it's pretty clear, isn't it, that this did not start on January 6th. There are lots of events leading up to January 6th.
1: That's right. I think there are a number of different events uh, leading up to January 6th including the ways in which uh, Donald Trump primed his supporters and his most violent Mm -hmm. supporters, and also the way in which Donald Trump and uh, his very close associates like White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, were trying other routes to illegally um, or illegitimately interfere with the Justice Department to try to get them to overturn the election.
0: So clear that things started ahead of time, maybe even, I think, as one of your articles pointed out, a year ahead of time, and Donald Trump was involved, and Donald Trump... Did not act alone, right?
1: That's right. He did not act alone. And a year ahead of time is when he is beginning to broadcast to his supporters that political violence is acceptable,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that he will not necessarily go along with a peaceful transfer of power, that the election is going to be rigged against them. You know, it's all building, building, building. So it's not just that something occurred on the morning of January 6th. It right. uh, really yeah, uh, starts long before then were there any crimes committed? So I think that the strongest evidence of crimes that we already have in the public record is Donald Trump and Mark Meadows pressuring the Justice Department to create investigations and make announcements of election fraud that are based on no reasonable predicate. And that level of coercion does actually trigger federal felonies in the respect of there's a provision 18 U.S.C. 610, um, mm-hmm. which is the political coercion crime that nobody should pressure, try to intimidate a, an official to engage in any political activity On behalf of a candidate. And just to make it so crystally clear, I think one of the smoking gun pieces of evidence is a January 3rd letter by a senior Justice Department official, the associate deputy attorney general, who is expecting Trump to fire the acting attorney general that day. And he writes the letter for mass resignations. And it says, quote, acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, over the course of the last week, repeatedly refused the president's direct instructions to Mm. utilize The Department of Justice's law enforcement powers for improper ends, end quote. And that is at the heart of 18 U.S.C. 610. So I think that's, to me, right up there at the top of the list. And then the second is it stands to be shown how far the Select Committee, for example, will be able to get into this, but was Donald Trump inciting his supporters to engage in the very crimes for which most of them have been? indicted. And that's the crimes of trespassing into the Capitol and trying to interrupt the business of Congress. We don't need to get into whether or not he also envisioned them engaging in significant acts of violence. That alone, I think, mm-hmm. would be enough. So on
0: August eight on your uh, site, Just Security, you outlined, you've you've mentioned a couple of times, Mark Meadows. And I was struck by that timeline you give because I didn't realize the extent to which basically this was Mark Meadows' full-time job now, right? Trying to uh, undermine and then overturn the election. It looks like he didn't have time for anything else. Uh, And you mentioned nine different acts of his. I'd like to, to go through them. The first one, Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani created a parallel track to raise election fraud claims. So is that you're saying inside and outside the White House, they were coordinating this?
1: That's right. So the words parallel track come directly from Wall Street Journal reporter Michael Bender's book, uh, and he reported on this. Um, Mm -hmm. So he basically says that the White House chief of staff acting with the president's personal lawyer create a parallel track to try to raise these election fraud claims, get them investigated, bring on board very fringe people (laughs) who are also going to try to overturn, for example, they target a significant part. Georgia, Georgia's elections. And that's the parallel track. And it's, you know, it even has the echo of the Ukraine scandal with Giuliani setting up, up a parallel track, parallel to the State Department. Here's a parallel political track to the normal ways in which the US government handles any kinds of questions of election law,
0: And then point number two is that the Trump campaign followed up under pressure from Mark Meadows, you say, followed up on Meadows' theory that tens of thousands of illegal aliens voted in Arizona.
1: That's right. And the words Meadows' theory come from, you know, Carol Lennig and Philip Rucker's book. So they report on this part of it, which is that it's Meadows' theory <laughs> that there are these quote-unquote illegal aliens who voted in Arizona Based on... based on nothing in the end of the day? I mean, just based on, I don't know what, like, was it rumor or or, or what? Because in the end, it's the, even the campaign says there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's remarkable that's the chief of staff coordinating that with his theory so that the campaign follows up on it, not the apparatus of US government, but rather the campaign. Yeah. So it shows that connection once again.
0: And then now here comes this uh, this character, Jeffrey Clark, who has been getting a good deal of attention lately, post-January 6th, that it was Mark Meadows that introduced President Trump to Jeffrey Clark. And they began plotting on how to oust Jeffrey Rosen and to get the DOJ, right, involved in trying to overturn the election results in Georgia.
1: That's right. So Jeffrey Clark is one of the worst actors, it seems like, in this whole scenario. He is plotting to get the acting attorney general fired so he can be the acting attorney general. He's coming up with totally off-range theories like there's an Italian military satellite that altered oh, ballots yeah. or that China used a thermostat <laughs> to alter mm-hmm. ballots. So I actually think he might be, to be honest... Um, a true believer. (laughs) Sounds like it, right. But he's, but that he's involved and who, you know, who is the one introducing this figure to the president of the United States, but the chief of staff who's supposed to act as a gatekeeper to avoid any such kind of um, individual interacting with the president. Yet it seems like Clark and Trump end up coordinating, collaborating in their scheme, conspiring, I think is probably the better term. And all of this is happening behind the scenes. The Justice Hmm. Department senior officials don't even know it. So all of this is Meadows violating well-settled White House contact policy, Justice Department contact policy that says there shouldn't even be these contacts. And even if there ever were such a contact, it it must be with the uh, acting attorney general, deputy attorney general, with their knowledge um, or direct involvement.
0: Yeah. Now, before Rosen takes over, uh, Bill Barr kind of threw a wrench into things because he came out and actually said that he had seen no evidence of election fraud that would have affected the outcome in the election as you point out in your fourth point, didn't make Mark Meadows or Donald Trump uh, very happy.
1: That's right. So Barr deliberately decides to do this on December first. So he reaches out to the Associated Press and gives this statement, which is a bit of a bombshell, especially coming from him. Right at the time, and then so happens to have a meeting at the White House that same day, and Meadows expresses his great frustration slash anger for the attorney general having done this. And then they also meet with Trump and the attorney general goes point by point through all of the bogus allegations explaining why they are all, in his words, BS, according to multiple reports, including Jonathan Carl, So it's remarkable that you know Meadows is on that side of the equation because apparently the White House counsel is also present in that meeting and speaks on behalf of Barr. But it seems like it's Meadows and Trump together very angry at the attorney general for speaking the truth. Uh,
0: And then I didn't realize this. You point out next that Mark Meadows, again, we're talking about the White House chief of staff himself goes down to Georgia (laughs) and meets with the lead investigator working for the secretary of state, again, putting pressure on her to come up with some evidence of fraud. That's right. Totally outside his role as White House chief of staff.
1: Yes. I assume that the select committee will find out who paid for his flight Good uh, point. by way of example. Yeah. Because yeah
0: it, and whether he took official government jet, right?
1: Exactly. Right. Which will add even more evidence to uh, his criminal liability. So yes, I, I myself had missed that until I did this like deep research. It's just remarkable. And then when Trump calls her the next day, he says that he's calling her because of Meadows telling him to or suggesting that he do. And that's when he asks her to, quote unquote, discover the fraud in her role as an investigator. And that Mark Meadows tells him that she's a good person. So hmm. uh, Meadows is yet yeah, directly implicated in all of that
0: too. And then it was the next day that Trump calls uh, the famous call to Raffensperger, right? Where he says, just find me what 11,782 votes. That's all I want, right? Again, yes, Mark Meadows sets that call
1: up yes he does he sets up the call and when the calls transcript and audio recording breaks the next day apparently multiple allies of president trump are very angry at meadows for having set up the call and according to reports they tried 18 times to reach (laughs) raffensperger before they finally do and then and then meadows also sits in on the call and participates on the side of trump pushing them to quote unquote find the votes and also Meadows does something else remarkable on the call himself. He asks the Georgia officials to share internal voting data. And the Georgia government uh, lawyer says that, basically says that's illegal. He says we, we're not legally permitted. That's protected by law. And Meadows repeats his ask for them to share that information.
0: And we've talked before about Meadows continuing to pressure Justice Department officials. But then moving over to the Department of Defense, as you report, the then acting Secretary of Defense Chief of Staff, Cash Patel, Tell says on January sixth, he spoke to Meadows nonstop. What was going on? Was this Meadows saying don't send the National Guard?
1: So this one is hard to know. I do think that Meadows played a very nefarious role up until January 6 and I think he's got significant criminal exposure for his actions. It's a little bit more difficult to know what is happening on January 6 itself if he thinks that they've gone too far. The fact that he's in constant communication with Cash Patel is not good news for Meadows. Cash Patel is not the kind of actor or player that one thinks was on the good side of things that led to and included the insurrection. And in fact, you know, according to the, a lot of the reporting, the Rucker and Lennox book and others, General Milley, for example, is very concerned about the installment of Kash Patel, a kind Mm -hmm. of Devin Nunes, he worked for Devin Nunes, Devin Nunes, Trump (laughs) loyalist. Um, So the fact that Kash Patel says he's in nonstop communication with Meadows is not something I think Meadows would like the public to know.
0: And finally, uh, you make the point, and we expected this, it didn't happen, and we wonder why it didn't happen, that Trump was considering issuing a preemptive pardon for himself, for Rudy Giuliani, and for Mark Meadows.
1: Yeah, so that was reported by Bloomberg. And there were different reports uh, of different lists that Trump had, but Bloomberg had the list that had Meadows' name on it. And I didn't remark on it or think about it at the time, but now having gone back and seen all of the ways in which Meadows was deeply involved, I think it's astonishing. Like, Why is Mark Meadows on the list of people who need a preemptive pardon and, in in their framework? Uh, what kind of criminal liability or exposure do they think he has? So it's really quite remarkable that Mark Meadows would be on that list of people in need of a preemptive pardon. And there actually was reporting as to why Trump doesn't go through with the preemptive pardons. And that's because White House counsel, Pat Cipollone threatened to resign. He said that many of his senior lawyers would resign en masse, and he said he would hold a news conference announcing his strong objections to the preemptive pardons, and then Trump backs down. Trump so down. It's, that's, we got that close um, to that happening as well in terms of an obstruction of justice.
0: So, all of that actions of and by White House Chief of Staff uh, Mark Meadows, Uh, Ryan, we haven't even uh, touched yet on the direct role that Donald Trump was playing uh, in January 6th. I want to get to that next with you, because that is probably the key point here uh, on the Bill Press Pod. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and pick up on, on the other side. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website. Check it out at UFCW.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's guest, Ryan Goodman. He's the founder and co-editor-in-chief of Just Security, a national online forum, a great source for you on all national security issues uh, so, Ryan, we've been talking about how Mark Meadows was up to his armpits in leading up to and in the day of January 6. So was, of course, the president himself. Uh, you have reported on just security. It was almost a whole year of Donald Trump going out of his way to encourage violence, to praise the Proud Boys, to say uh, QAnon, stand by, stand re- stand back, and stand by, or whatever, and then. As we get closer to the election, of course, saying the election was gonna be rigged, afterwards saying it had been stolen from him. And then, I wanna get to January 6th, right? He's the one who identified January 6th as the day to come to Washington and invited his supporters to come to Washington on that day for that purpose of stopping the certification of the Electoral College, correct?
1: That's all correct.
0: And then he repeatedly encouraged his followers to come. And once they get there, do you believe that his remarks at that rally incited the violence that ensued?
1: Absolutely. I don't have the statement in front of me, but I could just quote Mitch McConnell's statement after the impeachment trial in which he said that Trump is morally and practically responsible for the events of January 6th. So I completely agree with that. I think his words incited the insurrection. And then the only question as a matter of like criminal law will also be about his intent. But his words incited that insurrection. And once
0: it happened, he's back at the White House, the entire world was watching. What does Donald Trump do?
1: According to multiple reports and Senator Ben Sass, Trump is quote unquote, delighted by what he sees. And he is surprised that those closely around him are not also relishing it. And multiple people try to get him to make a statement to tell his supporters to leave the Capitol, mm-hmm. and he won't do it over hours. And he has a you know, moral and legal responsibility to protect the Capitol, and he's not doing
0: it. Did he also, do you believe, come close to or perhaps did uh, break the law by pressuring Mike Pence not to certify?
1: So that's a good question. I do think that that is one of the ways in which if itself is not a crime, It is, and and Mike Pence in some sense as an an election official in that capacity. It adds to the other ways in which there is criminal liability for Trump's actions and the ways in which he also pressured the acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, to try to, to force him to send the Jeff Clark letter to Georgia saying that Georgia needs to roll back its certification. So, that one I think is a clearer criminal liability within Mm -hmm. the four corners of the code. The part with Pence is a little bit more of a difficult case.
0: So, what should, what do you believe has to happen next? Should there be an investigation? If so, who should investigate and what are the possible consequences?
1: So, I definitely think there should be both law enforcement investigations and congressional investigations that follow the facts and try to get at accountability. So if people were criminally or otherwise responsible for the coup attempt on January sixth, they should be held responsible. And that includes everybody, nobody's above the law. It includes the President of the United States. So I think that it is a good very good for the country that there's a select committee that will like looks like it is intent on getting the answers.
0: But you you indicate that's not enough, right? In addition to that
1: That's not enough because it's in the political sphere and there's only so much that the committee can really do in terms of accountability. I think there needs to be true accountability. Otherwise, we will see a repeat of this if there aren't uh, ways in which people have to pay a price. And that means the FBI must investigate everybody who is potentially criminally responsible for the insurrection, regardless of their position. If he were not the president of the United States, And Donald Trump, with his media power over his supporters, I would imagine that's exactly what the FBI would be doing. But it sounds as though they're not going that far. There's also potentially in D.C., the local attorney general can investigate and has said that he is investigating for incitement of a riot. And down in Georgia, the Georgia officials are also conducting an investigation for how Trump tried to overturn the Georgia elections. And I think all of those should proceed and I would hope that the various authorities, federal and state, cooperate any of those investigations. I worry that the Georgia one, for example, would not receive the cooperation from Georgia state officials. But I think all of that should take place in a healthy democracy and I'd really fear listening to what historians say Mm -hmm. that if we don't have accountability, it's a green light to this kind of activity happening again, and we are living on the edge.
0: Back to the FBI. The FBI would be conducting such an investigation if Merrick Garland had told them to. Why hasn't Merrick Garland, the attorney general, acted so far? What's he afraid of? Or is he waiting for the Is Joe Biden holding back? Is Garland holding back? How do you read it?
1: So I think that Garland is holding back in the sense that he, on many a question, is letting the professionals who have served in the past administration, as well as uh, this one, make the kinds of calls that that would then percolate up to the attorney general because of fear of politicization or the appearance of it. My concern is that he is giving the opposite appearance because <laughs> uh-huh. right. th- that is politicization. The fact that we wouldn't investigate this individual because of his position or his media power is politicization. The true way to follow the rule of law, according to what Garland himself said in his nomination hearing, is to insist. He doesn't have to name Donald Trump, but to insist that the FBI investigate all potentially criminally liable individuals. I think that would be a stronger message he could send. During the transition, there were reports that Biden kind of wanted to turn the page. And I do think that this White House and Biden in particular kind of focus on the problems ahead of them. They think, you know, we've got so many things to deal with, with COVID and other matters that they are trying to problem solve those kinds of issues not look backward. And I think that's uh, kind of just a category mistake. This is not backwards. This is our present. White supremacist violence, political violence is the present danger in our country. And the only way we can really try to grapple with it is with a rule of law and a justice department that enforces the law.
0: And it seems to me, uh, and from your reporting, that the FBI is already conducting investigation, have filed charges against over 500 people who actually physically were present and caused damage at the Capitol and, and threatened the lives of members of Congress and the vice president, they certainly, as part of that investigation, you would think they wouldn't stop there, right? They would go up the chain of command and look at the people who sent them there or inspired them or incited them. That would be a logical part of the same investigation.
1: One hundred percent. And especially when so many of the defendants are saying (laughs) in these court hearings, he is the one who said, I went there because of him. (laughs) No, that's right. There's a good investigation lead there. (laughs) So absolutely. And also Roger Stone, you know, that's part of the way up that chain, uh, which is when. You're prosecuting these militia groups, and then some of those very individuals are with Roger Stone the night before, and he has been mixing with them for weeks in advance, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. You would think you would want to get all of the cell phone and other traffic between Roger Stone and those individuals. There's certainly enough to open an investigation.
0: Yeah. And with Trump, they were wearing his gear. They were waving his flag. Uh, They they were telling people uh, we're here because Donald Trump wants us here, right? We're Donald Trump's soldiers. He, But he, didn't he call them the Trump army or Donald yes. Trump Jr. I called them the Trump army.
1: Well, also in their campaign literature, they refer to them as the army as well. So in so many ways, the causal connection is evidenced, not to toot our horn, but at Just Security, we did produce the video that showed, we got it from Parler, the simultaneous reaction of the crowd to Trump's speech at the Ellipse, when they say they're going to march into the Capitol, take the Capitol, in response to his very words in his remarks. And then, you know, then there's the widely reported other video footage, and our footage was played at the impeachment trial. And the widely reported other footage where the people are saying themselves, he sent us. That's what they're declaring and shouting into the faces of U.S. Capitol Police. And then the other one that I thought was really remarkable is that Trump says to the crowd, I will be there with you. And then you see the people on the Capitol grounds saying, he's here, he's here, which they were led to believe that. So they were led to believe that he was commanding them into battle. He was present at the battlefield. And so they had his license as the president of the United States to... Draw the causal connection even more clearly. When he finally tells them to leave, they leave. <laughs> so it's like it, it mm-hmm. he is the uh, on off switch.
0: Yeah. Uh, when he finally tells them to leave and tells them he loves them. Right.
1: Yes. And remember yeah. this day forever.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Yes. What happens? What's the consequences if they stop at getting the people who invaded the Capitol and do nothing about either members of Congress, who, like Mo Brooks, who encouraged them? or Rudy Giuliani, or Donald Trump himself, or Mark Meadows, or Donald Trump himself? What happens if nothing happens to those who are in public office, in positions of authority?
1: I think that it can only lead to the current trajectory that we're on. So I think the current trajectory that we're on is a very significant threat of political violence in our country, and the attempt to use these forms of intimidation to overturn American democracy, to threaten election officials, and the like. That's the current trajectory. And we have to have the enforcement of our laws and true accountability to take us off of that track. But that's, that's the track we're unfortunately on. And it's what the Department of Homeland Security is warning um, us about mm-hmm. now quite frequently.
0: Boy. That is scary stuff indeed. Well, we hope to see a very robust, we've seen the beginnings, I think, of a very robust investigation by the Select Committee and the House of Representatives. Hopefully, that will be joined by an equally robust uh, investigation on the on the part of the department of justice and when they get there professor goodman you've done all their homework for them so (laughs) uh, i think they're going to be relying to a great extent on your excellent reporting on just security for which we thank you congratulate you and thank you for um, helping us understand the timeline leading up to january 6th here today on the bill press pod
1: thanks ryan thank you so much
0: and that's it for today's podcast the first in our three-part series our democracy in peril thanks to ryan goodman and thanks to all of you for listening so now we know how january 6th the insurrection happened and who's behind it next week we'll take a look at will they ever be held responsible will justice ever be done we'll see you then meanwhile don't forget to uh check out our roundtable on friday on the Bill press pod take care of yourselves. We'll see you on the next edition of Our
1: Democracy in Peril.